Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, the fish rot corruption scandal in Namibia has implicated at least two ministers and other government officials. Will the ruling party SWAPO get tangled in its net? And Algeria's new leadership is closely tied to the political and military establishment. Will its foreign policy towards sub-Saharan Africa change? Plus, we discuss China's engagement with African militaries, journalists, and students. Is the United States paying close enough attention? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Namibian politics are reeling from the fish rock corruption scandal. This big corruption scheme goes to the highest level in Namibia. That's buying political influence. That would be corruption. Will revelations about government kickbacks cast a shadow over President Gengab's second term? Joining me to discuss Namibia and other topics are Shinovene Emanuel. He's the investigations editor at The Namibian. Lena Ben-Abdullah, a CSIS senior associate and author of Shaping the Future of Power, Knowledge Production and Network Building in China-African Relations. And John Culver, a former national intelligence officer for East Asia. This is our eighth episode in partnership with African Arguments. For our listeners, African Arguments is a pan-African platform for news, investigation, and opinion. Okay, Shenavene, I'd love you to explain to our listeners what is the fish rot scandal and what are its implications for Namibian politics? Yeah, um, thanks for, for inviting me. The fish rot scandal, in short, is basically a corruption scheme that uh, involved, you know, the using of money from the fishery sector, which is tightly controlled by the government. In this case, it's the distribution of money that was supposed to go to the government or, you know, benefit communities and uh, the country at large. The, the money was then often used to fund campaign uh, uh, programs of the ruling party. So it's basically the use of uh, state resources to bankroll political campaigns and politicians. But then uh, by end of last year, there was a, a collaboration involving a whistleblower. His name is Johnson Stephenson. He, he basically gave reporters, including a newspaper in Namibia. It's called the Namibian, where I work. In Iceland, it is a TV station there, state-owned TV station, and uh, Al Jazeera. So we collaborated and produced kind of um, series into how this fish rot scandal uh, in, uh, unfolded. So maybe five days after that uh, expose, up to uh, two ministers resigned, uh, a minister of justice, Saki Shangala, and the minister of fisheries, uh, Bernard Esau, and then a managing director at big investment firm, who was basically the mastermind of the financial side of the fish rot scandal. As we speak, they are still in jail awaiting trial. Well, first, congratulations to the paper for, you know, exposing this corruption scandal. Ryan Cummings, who's one of our senior associates, and I talked a little bit about this issue in our latest Under the Radar commentary. And what's interesting to me is even though, you know, you blew the top off of this back last year, and the trial is starting now, right? Sort of the beginning of the bail hearings and then eventually the proceedings. And even in these testimonies, we're starting to see more allegations come out, right? There was at least one claim that SWAPO, the ruling party, uh, had access to illegal funds ahead of the 2017 Electoral Congress. 
Do you think this is going to get bigger? Do you think we'll see more heads roll? How concerned are you about the implications of this for the second term of President Gengab? Yeah, I, th- I think in terms of the number of implicated people, it depends, I think, on the people who are inside, those who have been uh, busted to waiting trial. Uh, whatever they say will easily affect who is who else is going to be held accountable. My suspicion is probably it's not going to lead to the arrest of bigger, you know, ministers, because I think these the ones who have been arrested are the main ones. Those who benefited might clearly, as, as the ruling party is claiming now, they are saying, actually, we didn't get the money directly. And in actual fact, they might have a point. You know, for instance, uh, this week we reported about how a lawyer used to, you know, he will book trips for politicians of the ruling party to attend rallies, for instance. They will buy them food. They will, they will give transfer money specifically to certain people who will in turn support the, the presidential candidate. So it will depend on what is going to be said at, in court. My, my sources are telling us that actually those inside, they're feeling that they are being thrown under the bus. They are not the one who benefited most. So it's really a bit, a bit tricky to say, you know, it probably will go higher up. But uh, at the moment, just those two, it's quite uh, historic for Namibia. Well, I think the bottom line then has to be watch this space or if this was a uh, Bernstein or Woodward, follow the money, right? So I encourage people to continue to watch your paper's coverage on this. That's where I get most of my insights about the fish rot scandal. I want to ask you one last thing that it's been sort of a side story, but really important and part of the research agenda of the CSIS Africa program, which is there was a reporter from the state-owned Namibian press who asked the president a question, right, about his personal lawyer's involvement, and then the state-owned press distanced themselves. Is this an alarm bell about freedom of press in your country, or is this an isolated incident? Before I go on that question, you know, for us, especially in Namibia, for the Namibian media, the Namibian newspaper where I work, we started writing this story as far back as 2013, 2014, and we always brushed this issue as us, you know, trying to paint certain people as corrupt while they are, you know, well-known business people. So we feel in a way vindicated, you know, for us, it didn't start last year in us reporting it. We started uh, close to seven years ago. The issue of the reporter at the state-owned agency who was castigated by, you know, by government officials, by his own bosses, I think it brings to the fore just how artificial Namibia's press freedom kind of thing is. If you look at closely who owns the Namibian media, close to 80%, it's either government-owned and the rest are often those business people who have close ties to power. And the little, the few independent institutions, media institutions that like the Namibian are so rare that you can see there that even somebody working at a government agency took it upon themselves to say, look, I have to question this to the president directly. So it's, it's a kind of thing that is now blowing up into the public, but for us, we have seen it all coming. We are, you know, we are rated number one in terms of press freedom in Africa, and I guess it's because probably the other countries have it worse. You know, in Namibia, you, you hardly find a journalist being harassed or being killed or being attacked, at least not physically. But this it basically shows how you know we are also struggling in terms of media plurality to hold power to account. So it's quite actually a, a worrying trend that I think. Hopefully it will just, you know, lead to 
those in power to just allow the media to do its work, whether it's at a state-owned entity or not. Thanks for sharing that perspective. That's really helpful. Let's shift to Algeria. This is not a country that my program follows a lot. We don't really follow North Africa. We're subject to the same strange bureaucratic seams and artificial divides that the U.S. government is. But we did talk about the political transition in Algeria back in June of last year. Actually, that was our first episode with African Arguments. And since a lot's happened and Lena's here, I wanted to just chat a little bit and update our listeners. So, Lena, Algeria had a presidential election in December. They got a new president after two decades under Bouteflika. And the new president is seen as part of the old guard, candidate of the military. Um, His ascension really hasn't satisfied the Hirak protest movement. This will be a waiting game to see how much of the Hirak's demands uh, will be met, if they will be met at all. What strategies the Hirak can now adopt apart from just mobilizing in the streets? Will there be representatives that can negotiate with the regime? These are questions that will remain to be answered and only time will tell. What are your thoughts? Where are we now? Yeah, well, especially now with COVID-19, Hirak has been put aside. Uh, so the government has banned all kinds of protests uh, since uh, the month of March. And so Hirak has had to find creative ways to continue to think about the questions of where the government and where the country is headed to. And uh, in the middle of all of this, of course, economic side uh, of things as in financial side has gotten a lot worse. So as you know, the World Bank had reclassified Algeria from upper middle income country to lower middle income country. And basically the financial troubles have really stacked up in the middle of the pandemic. And as you know, oil prices still have not really recovered from the heavy blows that we've seen in global oil prices a couple of months ago. And so You know, all of these are just ingredients for potential more protests to come once the restrictions to travel and movements and et cetera have been lifted. I guess the question for many of our listeners will be about Algeria's foreign policy. Algeria plays an outsized role in sub-Saharan Africans' foreign policy. They tend to have the key position at the AU Uh, the Peace and Security Commissioner, although there's some questions about whether or not uh, they will have that in the next go-around. And then, of course, Algeria is really important in the Sahel. And since we're recording this only a couple of days after the coup in Mali, I'd like to get your thoughts on where do you see the foreign policy of Algeria as it respects to the rest of the continent and to the Sahel? If the president is part and parcel of the old guard. Does that mean a continuation? Or is the internal issues, whether it's COVID or economic or otherwise, should we expect a different role from Algeria? Algeria's foreign policy has been dormant for the last several years, and that was in part due to the former president, Bouteflika, uh, really not being able to travel or go or really lead the government's foreign policy. And so there's a a tremendous task there and a solid uh, understanding that there's a huge need for revitalizing uh, Algeria's foreign policy. Um, What we've seen, actually, an interesting nugget here um, of of change immediately is seen in the Constitution. There is a proposed change in Article 98, which would give the right to intervene abroad uh, to the Algerian army. So this would be interesting because of course, 
Algeria has has been really adamant about sort of non-interference and non-intervention. But should this be uh, something that changes, then we will see the government perhaps, you know, thinking about the crisis in Libya and the crisis in Mali with a more hands-on approach, meaning potentially sending soldiers abroad. With regards to the Sahel, um, specifically, as you mentioned, Algeria has been a big player and tries to really portray itself as sort of an expert on counterterrorism as a country that has gone through a lot of the similar issues and conflicts and problems and and, and is connected to the problems that we see in the Sahel. When it comes to to actual policies, it has just really been very isolated in the last few years. And that basically needs to change if the the, the country wants to repackage or reshape its image. With regards to the coup in Mali, I haven't really seen much... Coming out of Algeria, besides the Ministry of Foreign Affairs basically really issued a statement that basically firmly rejected what was going on and called for a return to sort of constitutional processes and, and following the constitution. Yeah, I haven't seen them do much aside from that either. And we've written some some papers here at CSIS talking about Algeria is the guarantor of the peace accords. And given all that you've just said, Lena, if they don't shift from this dormant foreign policy into something more engaging. I mean, it raises a number of questions about what role Algeria should have in any post-coup Mali or peace settlement or dealing with counterterrorism, because uh, it does feel like the international community doesn't have a partner really in Algeria right now on some of these issues, and yet its name you know, defines the accord. So anyway, I don't think we can solve that, but I just wanted to throw that out there that as people think about Mali uh, and think about the African Union, understanding Algeria's domestic politics and some of the things that Lena mentioned are really important to see the big picture. So let's move to the topic of the day, which is on China and Africa. We've actually been pretty good at not doing a lot of China and Africa shows, mainly because we have our friends like Eric and Kobus, who have a whole podcast based on it. But we've been doing this mini-series on Africa's foreign relations. We talked about France. We talked about the United States. So, of course, we were going to talk about China. And John is... A good friend of mine, former national intelligence officer for East Asia. You're widely recognized as one of the U.S. government's foremost experts on China. I thought for our audience, it'd be really helpful to understand how China thinks about Africa. How does it fit into its worldview and its broader foreign policy goals? Thanks, Judd. It's great to be on here to, and to at least virtually see you again. It was great. The work we did together uh, really opened my eyes because a lot of the China watching community is just that. They're staring at China. And even if we have expertise on China and Africa, a lot of the insights come from the African community and the African analytic community in the U.S. and and in the broader uh, kind of uh, environment and alliance. As you know, know, China's been connected to Africa, especially sub-Saharan Africa, for a very long time. A lot of the recent U.S. policy focus only dates from the past decade intends to treat Chinese political, economic, and security ties on the continent as an outgrowth of its economic prowess. But China's connections date from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s when Mao Zedong sought revolutionary connections to what were then national liberation or anti-colonial movements and today are the ruling parties of many sub-Saharan African countries. A second key point is that over the past decade, Chinese interests in Africa have expanded and diversified from resource extraction 
and international support, especially at the United Nations, to viewing the continent as a massive market for Chinese value chains, consumer goods, and especially platforms. And with that, I mean international logistics, shipping, port management, and, and the financial networks, the payment systems like Alipay and Chinese banks and financial institutions. Increasingly, as U.S.-China tensions mushroom, Africa is being portrayed by the Trump administration as a contested space in a new Cold War. And Trump's Africa policy is almost solely focused on challenging China's influence there by punishing China's friends on the continent and rewarding U.S. stalwarts. But John, is, you know, I've seen these numbers that I, I think are really interesting, right? Like China does more trade with Latin America than it does with Africa. I think if I'm, I have the numbers right, China's trade with Germany is equivalent to Africa. So there's questions about, does China see Africa as a vote-rich continent, an economic opportunity? How does it rack and stack Africa? And you and I have talked before about, at one point, China thought about Africa as a place where perhaps there could be some cooperation with America. Do you think that's still true in 2020? I think, you know, that was very much kind of an artifact, especially of the Obama administration and kind of a determined effort by both sides then to find ways to engage and cooperate. And they really settled on health security in Africa and food security and power generation, although sometimes from sort of different approaches, not always cooperatively, but at least not competitively. And a lot of that seems to have fallen by the wayside. And I don't want to overstate China's interest in Africa because the Chinese know that they're not the only game, that Africans, all those countries especially, have a lot of options. But Chinese interest in Africa and their approach there, it is diverse and deep. They don't view the continent as a blob. They've expanded and opened new diplomatic facilities. And they seem to understand that while African loyalties can't be bought and can only be rented, the Chinese are in it for the long haul. They view a lot of their approach to Africa, as they do in Latin America and Southeast Asia, as investments in relationships that give China more diverse long-term options. John, you couldn't have set Lena up better, right, as a transition. Lena, you wrote a great book. I just finished it, Shaping the Future of Power, Knowledge Production and Network Building in China-Africa Relations. And I think you argue very persuasively that we have to think about China's people-to-people engagement, how it develops relationships you know, not just with governments or, you know, the head of state, but military, journalists, students. And you make this argument that this is as important as economic or security investments. I would also add that you wrote an article in African Arguments a couple of years ago where you talked about how that China lends less money than most people really understand or think about. Can you walk us through some of the book's key judgments? Yeah, thank you. Although I think you did a great job sort of summarizing the main the main argument. But as an IR scholar, you know, and I'm, I'm looking at sort of this whole question of China's rise to the great power status and China's foreign policy um, in Africa and trying to analyze that. And here, the interesting thing is that for a uh, first time in a long time, you know, we have a non-Western power that we're looking at as sort of great power with global influence. And so here, the starting point for my book was to not assume that, you know, power and influence and approaches to power 
just the way we have in international relations looked at them based on what we know from US Europe relations or from you know USSR histories are necessarily the same or going to be the same when when we're looking and analyzing China's rise to great power status and so instead I wanted to look at you know what matters in Chinese writing and Chinese thinking about power and approach to influence and you know and i think what my answer or what my it's a big puzzle of looking at what really how power is 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 approached and manifested and my book is a small piece in that puzzle and it adds just that one piece that looks at networks and relations you know if we translated this into the china africa relations then the you know the basic premise would be you know instead of just focusing solely and mostly on physical buildings on on material infrastructure on financial f- figures in china africa relations if we wanted to get a full picture of the approaches to power and influence we really have to that china deploys in africa we really have to look beyond that and looking beyond that for me meant to go into uh, detangle you know, these networks and relations and what's going on and the argument there or the findings of the book is that there is a whole big other infrastructure going on in the china africa relations and this infrastructure is essentially connected to high strong networks between or spun between high ranking officials in china and their african counterparts and when i look at summits when i look at government opportunities the latest china africa summit forum of of china africa cooperation in 2018 you know offered 50,000 opportunities for Africans to go to China for training you know what goes on in these trainings what happens when there's a summit what happens when there is a security forum in China typically you know we tend to overlook parts of the relations because they're difficult to count they're difficult to measure they're difficult to appraise but in the book i try to at least begin the question of looking at the importance of the relationships and networks that are spun between chinese elites and their african counterparts So Shinavene, this is your chance to tell us how it really works on the ground. This is your chance to tell us that John doesn't know what he's talking about and Lena doesn't know what she's talking about and I don't know what I'm talking about. Like from your vantage point in Namibia, how is this playing out? I mean, Lena's data in her book says that Swapo had at least two party-to-party exchanges with the Communist Party uh, between 2016 and 2018 and I suspect you know people or maybe you've gone on these journalist workshops yourself. Like what has been your impression of these people to people engagements? I totally agree with John and Lena. If anything they even broadened, you know, just some of my understanding with how China operates. If anything I'll probably just try and add to explain because we uh, on our side I've reported on China so many times and uh, even at some point I think last year the embassy you know <laughs> invited me for lunch to just have a talk of why they you know they feel i'm being too hard on them and uh, you know they feel we are we don't understand that they are doing things for the benefit of the country but i think lena explained that part where we probably sometimes often even media the media just looks at you know if they china has a, a contract to build roads and so on but you know i can just give you some of the examples that china for instance in namibia in the past few years they were responsible for building an airport they were responsible for roads the harbor you know they have been dominant in the construction sector and even at some point proposed to you know set up a military base for china at, at uh, namibia's coast you know at the moment they are looking at building namibia's biggest airport they are currently dominating the uranium sector they own the biggest uranium mines in the country 
at the moment, they also looking at dominating the cement sector. If you look at those, we have the construction, we have the cement, we have the, you know, the uranium. It looks like it's becoming a block, but behind that block, you have, I assume, the Chinese government doing, being strategic in terms of how do they get Namibians on their side. Often in these contracts, you have what they call empowerment partners. And often behind these empowerment partners are the elite of Namibia's uh, ruling class where a certain businessman linked to maybe a minister is the partner in that construction tender contract, for instance. And then they move on to another contract. Another contract, no, it's the son of the minister. I've written some stories two, three years ago on how the Chinese, as Chinese state-owned company, you know, roped in the daughter of the president for some, some of these contracts. And I'm sure you'll assume that... Um, this thing, it then just strengthens the bond. But in terms of the relationships between, you know, the ruling party here and the Chinese Communist Party, they have increased, you know, their relationship in terms of engagements. I know of maybe two, you know, trips that uh, Swapo took from Namibia. They went to China. They as sister parties, like John explained, these ties goes back to 30, 40 years ago where the Chinese government was helping African countries to fight for freedom. And we, uh, as we have been reporting, it shows that I think the Chinese government even gave, you know, said, look, you, you don't seem to have the money. That's the message to the ruling party. We can, you know, build for you this, but in exchange, you have to do me something. Obviously, you won't see that publicly, but things like that, it's like you owe, you'll have, you'll owe them something. Uh, then, uh, instead, incidentally, you'll have to push for, China's interest. I don't think the Western countries are doing much to, to counter or just to do better and say, look, I think China is probably using a tactic like relationships as a way to, you know, get them on their side. Because now what you have is the issue of, you know, the rhetoric that has been going on for years to say, you know, you know, Western countries are imperialist, they, are, they just want to make money and, you know, they don't have the Namibian interest at heart. That was fantastic. Comprehensive. And now we're going to have to put in the show notes some of your greatest hits, because I think our our listeners are, will want to read some of these articles, particularly about the president's daughter. But some of the things you mentioned, Chinavene, are exactly what I wanted to ask John, which is, and I'm not putting words in your mouth, this is my view, I think we're falling short. The U.S. government is falling short on the people-to-people engagement. We've imposed travel bans on several African countries. We've reduced the size and the duration of the Young African Leaders Initiative, which is a great initiative, YALI, that was started under President Obama. And as Shinovene knows, more Africans now study in China than the United States. There's the, really the only bright spot is apparently the U.S. Army is looking to increase by 10% in FY21 and then maybe by 50% in 22 Africans who are joining their the military education programming. But overall, I think that this has been undervalued as a tool of measuring relationships. And I guess I just want your perspective, John, because when we talk about China and Africa, it's about the base in Djibouti. It's about debt. It's about Huawei. Listening to Lena and, and Chinavene, like, how do you think about the this people-to-people engagement? And it's really this also the strategic communications that Chinavene mentioned as well. How important is that? I think it's critical. I think that a lot of the things that have grabbed the headlights, the three or four issues you just mentioned, Chinese bases in Djibouti or elsewhere, Huawei and debt diplomacy are, you know, to be blunt, American propaganda themes that have tended to drown out all of the more substantive issues that are going to determine how the U.S. is viewed long term in Africa and the relevance of U.S. to African policies and priorities. 
So you know, it, it, it's really going to require, I think, a wholesale reset to approach Africa, first of all, not just as a continent, but as individual countries. And then to look at the development, economic, security, health security needs in a much more kind of long-term and determined way. If our interest in Africa is centered on counterterrorism or disease, it just continues kind of the old tropes about Africa being a place where things are taken from, like resources, minerals, energy, food, or bad things happen, terrorism, Ebola, disease. Then the opportunity side of Africa, the importance of Africa as a continent of what, two or three billion people in 20 years, I, I think continues to get deprecated in U.S. policy consideration. Lena, I want to turn to you for some recommendations. One of the, I think, most illuminating parts of the book was this section on universities and the way in which the Confucius Institutes operate, how it is this. It's not a recruitment pool. That would be the wrong way to characterize it. But the relationships that are built out of the Confucius Institutes are really interesting in terms of how the Chinese government sort of pops back in and develops ties. And I've been to a lot of American spaces, American corners, which is our version of that. And they are shoddy and kind of in disrepair. And the Confucius Institute that I saw at the University of Nairobi was brand spanking new and very high class. And I guess the question for you is, how does the U.S. do things differently to deepen its ties with African partners? I wouldn't suggest replicating the China approach. We have our own strengths. And you in your book, I think, note some of the real problems with the Institute or these exchanges being unidirectional. But how have you thought about the ways in which the United States could engage more effectively, constructively with its African partners? Yeah, and I think your view on Confucius Institutes is on point because just looking at it from the perspective of network building, you see that Confucius Institutes and African universities are not only these shiny new buildings and spaces where students typically get Chinese classes and courses tuition free, but they don't do just that. So Confucius Institutes are typically staffed, or at least in my experience, doing fieldwork in Addis Ababa University's Confucius Institute, staffed with Chinese staff that has a look towards turning Chinese language classes into real opportunities for the students. And real opportunities mean either connecting them to scholarship programs uh, for them to go to China to study more, or for the top-ranking students in the program, the Confucius Institute's will have a platform that can connect them to Chinese companies operating in Ethiopia, and then that can get them jobs. And so acting as that role that translates language skills into jobs that come with uh, economic opportunities, that come with material incentives in that way, is really important. Also from doing fieldwork in Ethiopia, what was really interesting about the Confucius Institute, the staff that I met there, is that you know, they, in the off time between teaching classes and doing other things, they were translating materials. And a lot of the material that were translating was, you know, like old Ethiopian history books and things that, uh, and not just history, but a lot of other things that the staff of the Confucius Institute uh, judged very important for understanding the, the, the context of Ethiopia. And so you do the, the groundwork for even companies and state-owned companies and firms trying to come in. So... You know, Confucius Institutes in Africa are a big hub. It's a network hub that connects all kinds of different things. And I think that that's 
really a very different story from Confucius Institutes here in the US. But in terms of recommendations on the African government side, African governments, I think, need to start taking seriously sort of the study of China. And so when we look at the gap um, in the number of institutions and think tanks and centers that are dedicated to the study of China, Chinese studies, in Africa compared to the proliferation of centers for African studies and the study of Africa in China, uh, we see that there's a huge knowledge gap. Uh, and that knowledge gap and the R&D investments are really going to be really important because this is what's going to shape the narrative. For the U.S. and how the U.S. can improve its relationships, I think that building or rebuilding or strengthening U.S., democracy at home is going to have a big, huge role in the way it's perceived abroad and it's in the way it's perceived in Africa. And I think that that's a big place to start for the U.S. Right now, even if countries in Africa don't have a travel ban, there are a lot of images that are sort of coming from the U.S. regarding race and regarding what it means to be in the U.S. as a black person that are a little bit scary. At the level of government, I think, like you said, thinking of Africa not as the space that is, you know, has to be competed for is really important. So thinking of Africa in terms of partnerships, in terms of actually genuinely developing partnerships and relationships with Africans, if anything from the book. Uh, what I try to say is that these relationships that we see today in the China-Africa relations are relationships that were built 40 years ago, 50 years ago. This isn't new. And looking forward, it's going to be the same thing. Lena, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's exactly on point. And I think that's a great way to end our podcast. Let me do some plugs because you've just brought up some really interesting things. I, I want to make sure people check out your book. It is a great read, a quick read, which we can't say sometimes of all academics. So definitely check out Lena's book. If you're not bookmarking the Namibian on your browser and checking it out every morning, you should be. Namibia, in some ways, I think is on the cutting edge of thinking about the China-Africa relationship, but also some of the issues around democracy and governance and corruption are really important there. And the Namibian newspaper under Shinovene's leadership is doing a fantastic job. And then because Lena talked about issues around race in America, I'll just say that if you aren't aware that we just started a new video series called Race and Diplomacy at CSIS, where we're going to be exploring these issues both at home and abroad and how that changes our relationship with the continent. So thanks to everyone. We'll be back in two weeks with the final episode of our mini series on foreign relations. We'll be talking about India, the Gulf and Japan. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks. Thanks.